No power of hell, no scheme of man. What a gospel. Security we have in Christ. What a gospel. I'm so glad you guys are here. Welcome. Good morning. Glad you guys chose to worship with us today at Emmanuel Fellowship Church. What a joy to be together. Today we're going to be doing or starting something new, but before I get into that, my task really quick is to give us a quick reminder about baptism. Lucas did a great job talking about it, but I have the mic and so I'm going to talk about it because I love baptism. It's one of my favorite things I get to do. Just I just really, really am into it. And, and I'll tell you guys, I think we all should be. This is one of the things Jesus handed us. He commanded this, right? Like of all, of all the things he left with us, he asked us to do this thing. And I think it's a gift to us. And you know, I'm, I, I, I don't divide. I don't, I don't push away or, or, or you know, forsake my, my brothers who have different convictions about baptism. But I genuinely believe that there is something uniquely special, important, sacred about believers' baptism by immersion. And I'll tell you why. You know, we talked just a couple weeks ago out of Romans 6 about this whole reality that we, that we identify with Christ in his death, right? That we, we connect with him in his, in his death and in his resurrection, that, it, that we get to experience the fruit of his work on our behalf. And, and I'll tell you guys, and some of you, I, even as I'm saying this, you're like, I know, I remember this. Like, baptism gives us this tactile reminder and teacher about that. I mean, you get dipped underwater, right? Like literally. And I don't know if you know much about water, but if you spend more than, I don't know, four minutes down there, you die. <laughs> it, is, it is not a place designed for you. And when we're dipped under into the realm of death, you identify with Christ and his death, and, you, and as you raise up, and the, and the person is saying, you know, raised up to walk in newness of life, and there's all these people who love you and are part of your story, cheering and clapping and embracing you. There's something about that that just burns into your soul in those dark times of doubt and suffering that you can come back to and go, I am identified with Christ in his death, and so I will be identified with him in his resurrection. Amen? I love baptism. It's going to be great in this space. I want you guys to be here. If you've never submitted the Lord in obedience through baptism, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I will tell you what I just told you. But I'll love, I'd love to tell you that again. <laughs> so if, if you have not done that, taking that step of obedience, man, please talk to me or Jim or Jesse or Craig, one of the pastors. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that. But to that end, guys, we're doing baptisms next week. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. It's going to be right here in this space. We're going to have a big old horse trough right here. You're going to need to come early or stay late. We're doing them at 1030 in between the two gatherings. So if this is your normal gathering, come early. Don't miss this. I want you in this room at 1030 because here's the thing. We're going to dip some people in some water and we're going to say raise up to the walk in newness of life. When they come out of that water, they need brothers and sisters acting a little bit of undignified and hooping and hollering and celebrating the goodness of God. And so I expect you guys to be here doing that. Sound good? Yeah. Got to get here just a little bit early, but it's going to be worth it. So this space, 1030 next week, we're going to be celebrating baptisms. It's going to be wonderful. I talked about that too long. We're getting into Acts. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter one today. We're going to be doing something really cool over the next several months. 
ahead of kind of our formal relaunch and reintroduction to the community as a, as a new church. Uh, in the time before then, we're going to be going through the last third of the book of Acts together. I think it's going to be really good for us. There's a lot of narratives and stories in this book that, man, they just challenge the church to kind of get out of their seats and get some kingdom work done. And so I think it's going to be a really good experience for us to go through these texts together uh, in this season of coming together and joining as one church. It's going to be great. Uh, we have a couple gifts for you guys in that vein. In the back of the room where the communion elements are, there's two stacks of books. There's a purple scripture journal. Uh, this has just the text of Acts next to blank pages for you to scribble notes and doodles and thoughts and prayers and things like that. You can grab that if you'd like it. There's also a blue book, which is a Bible study companion. It's actually a Bible commentary in the second half of Acts written specifically uh, with lay folk and church folk in mind. We'd love for you guys to have those as a gift because we want you to take notes and engage in the, in the text with us. And we also want you to include Acts in your personal Bible study. And so we want to give you some aids to help you do that. Those are in the back of the room on the table. If for some reason we're out of a pile of books, please talk to me or Craig or Jesse or Jim. We will make sure you get one of those. Those are a gift from us to you guys. We want you to have them. So don't miss out because you don't want to walk back there. The pile looks low or whatever it is. Tell us. We'll get you a copy. That's a present from us to you. We are in Acts chapter one today because for the next two weeks, I'm going to be doing a little bit of summary work, walking through the, the, the chunk of Acts leading up to where we're starting. We're going to be picking up in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey at a couple of the most famous narratives in all of Acts. And I'm going to take the next two weeks and kind of get us caught up to that so that we're all on the same page in terms of themes and direction and kind of where this book is going. Sound like a plan? Yeah. Awesome. Read with me. Acts chapter 1. Starting in the fourth verse, we read this. And while staying with them, he, he being Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father, we ask humbly in the next few minutes as we take some time to talk about your word, to discuss this text, to discuss the larger themes and direction of Acts, we ask that you would be our disciple, Holy Spirit. Illuminate the text to us, teach us, Holy Spirit, encourage us, convict us. And God, above all else, we just ask that as we leave this space today, we would leave having spent our morning with you and having heard from you in the way our hearts need. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Can I nerd out for a second? In The Two Towers, the second book of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, Half the room just got excited and half the room just got very disappointed. 
There's this scene near the end where, uh, if you don't know the story of the Lord of the Rings, I, I mean, honestly, you probably just need to leave. I know, like, we're welcoming to all people in this church, but not you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you don't know the story of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> it's about uh, this evil magic ring and these cute little hobbits, little short people with big feet, have to travel and take this magic ring and throw it into a volcano to burn it up. That's the basic story. Uh, and, and in the second book of the two towers, the, these main characters, Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee, they have traveled with this ring essentially into the most evil of evil places. They're far away from home in terrible, desolate lands. They're exhausted. They're tired. They're sad. All they want to do is go home, but they're stuck on their mission going forward. And the, this all kind of comes together in this scene where they get attacked by this giant spider demon named Shelob. Is that correct? That's correct. And they escape because Frodo has this, uh, this little vial that has a gem in it that an elf queen gave to him. Uh, guys, I know, we're deep in the woods. Stick with me. Stick with me. He's got this little vial with a gem that an elf queen gave him, and it like radiates this shining magic light that pushes back the demon, you know, and they, and they get out. And they're all sad and exhausted and almost dead and all these things. And they have this amazing conversation where they begin to talk about how they're in one of the grand tales that they grew up hearing about these amazing, huge adventures. And Samwise starts talking about how, how they're in this journey, and they have this really cool conversation back and forth about how the characters in the story never know how the story's going to end. And when they choose bravery, they never know if they're going to survive or just be slaughtered and forgotten, and, and how it's, you know, it's, it's real to him now because they're in it. And then, then, there's this really cool moment, this really cool moment where they're considering this this flask the elf queen gave him with this jewel, this called a Cimmeril in it, that's this ancient, ancient magic jewel. And Samwise realizes, we're not in a new story. You see, they grew up hearing stories and legends about these ancient magic jewels, these Cimmerils. And he goes, we're just continuing. We're just a new chapter in the story of this thing. We're not doing our, we're not doing our own new story we're continuing a story that's been going on forever, and we have our own page, our own chapter in it. And it, and it actually, like, something about that, like, invigorates them and gives them, like, the strength and encouragement to go on with what they're doing. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. The Lord of the Rings. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the idea that we are not living out our own story, but we're actually as the church today, as followers of Jesus, with the next page, the next chapter, in a story that God has been working out for thousands and thousands of years, from before the beginning of the clock of time was even set. And it's an amazing thing. I think it'll be something that actually encourages us and pushes us to action. So, Acts. Acts is actually the second volume of a unified work with the Gospel of Luke. So the both were written by the same guy, the physician Luke, the companion of Paul in several of his missionary journeys. They're actually, in academic world, considered one work, Acts, Luke. Uh, and, and, and they very specifically continue the same stories and the same themes. So by the way, uh, it would be really wise, really beneficial for you to include the Gospel of Luke in your devotional reading in the coming months. It'll, it'll help shed some light on some of what's going on in Acts. It's a unique take 
on the gospel story, not just in Luke, but also in Acts, because Luke is the only Gentile author of the whole New Testament. He's the only one who's a non-Jew, an outsider looking in, and it ends up just giving a really unique perspective on what God is doing and specifically on what Jesus is doing. If you read through Luke, you'll see that in, in his gospel, he has some really specific emphasis where he talks about really, I think, in vivid and beautiful ways, how the gospel speaks to people who are on the outside, to those who are marginalized, the poor, the forgotten, the sick, the unclean, females, Gentiles, like people who were not easily or quickly included in Jewish culture. Luke goes out of his way to tell you the gospel is for them. And that story continues as we go into Acts. The gospel of Luke ends with Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension into heaven. And Acts, as we just read, picks up at the exact same scene, Jesus' ascension into heaven after his resurrection. So he has gone and done his work on our behalf. And here we, we get this little encapsulation of his final instructions, his final words to his students, to his followers. And what we see in that is the summary of what's actually going to happen in Acts. Jesus' final words here before he ascends into heaven give us the main theme of the whole book of Acts as well as the structure that Acts is going to follow. What Jesus says to them is, wait for the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you power. And then you'll bear witness to me, to my person and my work, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's it. That's all of Acts. The church of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, bears witness to the person and work of Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the whole deal. Acts is divided up primarily into two sections, Acts 1 through 12, which we're going to talk about today, and then Acts 13 through 28, we're going to talk about the first part of that next week. Acts 1 through 12 talks about the beginning of this story, the coming of the Holy Spirit, how he comes in power and anoints the church and, and kind of supernaturally works the ministry of the church. And we'll see the church grow and explode through Jerusalem, out into Judea, out into Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. What we're going to do today is walk through that first section, Acts 1 through 12. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit, how he empowers the ministry of the church. Ultimately, this is going to connect us to one of the largest and most consistent prophecies and promises of God throughout all of Scripture. And we're going to end our time with an encouragement from the letter to the Hebrews. Sound good? Rock and roll. I hope so, because I feel like at that point, if you don't like it, we're already 20 minutes in. We're, that's, that's where we're going. Sorry. <laughs> So what I love about this text that we're in is that this is the resurrected Jesus, right? I can't overemphasize that. Jesus was dead, his ministry seemingly done, and he rose from the dead. His heart started beating, his lungs started breathing. He is walking in a new and perfect body, standing with his followers. I mean, if you had any doubts about Jesus' teaching, this is probably pretty good evidence that there's something to this whole Jesus thing. He didn't die when he died. That's, that's kind of convincing evidence that you should listen to this guy, right? He's standing here in his resurrected form. And what do his followers do? They immediately, immediately, completely and totally miss what's actually going on. It's at the end of the story. And when they've been following him for years, when they've seen him supernaturally raised from the dead, they're still missing who he is and what he's doing. This is insane to me, but it's not insane. It makes a ton of sense. 
You see, these guys had been raised their entire childhood into their adulthood to have a very specific expectation of the Messiah. What they're looking for is someone to come and raise up and rally Israel to raise up an army and overthrow Rome and establish Israel as a free and independent nation to the glory of God again. It's what they're looking for. It's what they've been raised up. It's what they've been expecting. It's what they've been trained to look for in the scripture. So even though Jesus spends three years telling them over and over and over, that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not what I'm going to do. That's not how the kingdom of God works. I'm not going to defeat Rome. Rome's going to kill me. Wait and see. It's wild. He keeps telling them that over and over and over. And yet, when Rome kills him, exactly as he says, and then he raises from the dead, exactly as he says, and then he's sitting with them, what's the first thing they say? So are you going to conquer Rome now? <laughs> Now's the time? Now we do it? Now the army? That's got to be frustrating <laughs> if you're Jesus. But in the most kind and gracious Jesus way possible, he just says, no, you have, you have no idea. And he basically tells them, look, you don't understand my kingdom and you won't understand my kingdom. What you get to do is wait for the Holy Spirit and then just bear witness to what you've seen and what you've heard. Can we sit with that for a second? He just says, look, you don't get to understand this. You won't. Yeah, I'm going to come back and I'm going to restore all things and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But you just don't get to be in on the details of the plan. (laughs) What you get to do is wait here. Wait for the Spirit to come in power and then just tell people what you've seen and what you've heard. You will be my witnesses. That's it. That's what you get to do. And beloved, that is still the mission of the church today. You get to wait on the power of the Spirit. And you get to proclaim boldly what you have seen and what you have heard in the person and work of Jesus. You don't get to know how it works. You don't get to set the time. You don't get to set dates. You don't get to define out the workings of it. You get to bear witness to what you've seen and what you've heard. And what a hope we have. What a hope we bear witness to. Because what he said is, I am coming back. That's what the angels said, right? As you saw him go, so he will return. Jesus will come back and he will make all things new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and there will be real justice and every last vestige of the curse will be completely and totally destroyed. There will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more hurt, no more wrong, no more death. That day is coming. Jesus will return. What a glorious hope we have. And in the meantime, we get to wait and we get to bear witness. What a gospel What a setup. All this hope we have in Jesus. And I love, by the way, that he he sets it up around the Holy Spirit. He says, guys, I'm leaving. See you later. But just wait. Just wait and see what actually happens when the Spirit comes. And if you follow through the story, it gets buck wild when the Holy Spirit shows up. So Jesus ascends into heaven, and 40 days later, all that, all that is at the church is about 120 people hanging out, and the Holy Spirit shows up in power during the, the festival of Pentecost. 
And the way he shows up is he manifests himself as fire coming out of the sky and grabbing a hold of people's heads. And so in the middle of this Jewish festival where people from all over the diaspora, all over the Jewish culture of the Roman Empire have come back to visit Jerusalem, all of a sudden in the middle of that, 120 people run out of a building with God fire on their heads and they start spouting off the gospel message, proclaiming the thing they've heard, the thing they've seen, the person and work of Jesus, everyone in all sorts of different languages that none of them have any reason to speak. It is an insane scene. People from all over the world are standing there going, how does that guy know my language? What's this thing he's talking about? It's such a wild scene that people's reaction is, somebody has been pre-gaming Pentecost. These guys are wasted. To which Peter's response is, guys, it's 9 a.m. <laughs> what kind of people do you think we are? But here's what's amazing about that. Spirit shows up in this amazing, crazy, wild, powerful way. And what happens? The church explodes. After this weird spectacle and one sermon, 3,000 people come to faith. The church goes from 120 people to 3,000 people in one day. I mean, really quick, like put that in perspective. Imagine next week, like the sermon is just that good and 3,000 people come to faith. Just imagine that logistically for a second. Like, what do you do the next Sunday? Baptism Sunday would be a lot longer, right? Like, that's, that's wild how quick that moves. Hey, I'm coming back. You guys just get to wait and bear witness for me. Wait for the Holy Spirit. He's going to move in power. Okay, okay, cool. When he shows up, he moves in power. And, and Acts 2, basically, through chapter 7, tells us about this initial just flurry of growth and movement and kingdom of God as the Jerusalem church explodes in growth, explodes in holiness, explodes in ministry, explodes in kingdom of God all over the city. The text tells us that day by day by day by day, more and more people were being added to the number. And we get this picture of the Jerusalem church that's just, it's just magical. People are preaching the gospel to each other. They're meeting with each other daily for worship, for prayer, for fellowship, for the sharing of communion. They, they get to this point where they look around and they go, hey, we have some poor people in our midst. We're not okay with that. And everyone starts selling off extra property and resources and sharing the resources to make sure everyone in this new church has enough food to eat and enough money to pay their bills. People are selling off things they own and donating the money to the church so they can all actually like afford to live and survive. It is this insane picture of love and grace and fellowship. What it actually is, is a little bubble of heaven on earth in the middle of Jerusalem. Well, what actually you see in these first five, six, seven chapters is people living into the kingdom of God in radical ways through the power of the Spirit. When the Spirit shows up, the church is born. And all of a sudden, there's this little outpost of heaven in the middle of the broken, cursed, sinful world right there in Jerusalem. It's a beautiful picture. And as it grows and explodes, all these administrative needs raise up. And the apostles look around and go, this is not our deal. Someone else needs to administrate everything. Which if you've ever known a pastor, is not that strange. They go, we do not have time 
to do all the background stuff. Someone else needs to do it. And so they raise up the seven, the kind of the prototype of what we call deacons, to do administrative ministry in the church. And again, you just you end up at the end of chapter seven with just this picture of the kingdom of God radically working out in the broken, sinful world, in the middle of the Roman Empire. It's beautiful. And then things go bad. See, one of these, as, as all this stuff is happening, they begin to actually draw the attention of the Jewish religious authorities. As the religious authorities see this church exploding and all these amazing kingdom things happening, they start to get pretty strong opinions about it. And they start out saying things like, hey, look, everything you're doing is cool. We love the miracles. We love all the fellowship. We love the way you're caring. That's awesome. But this whole Jesus thing, you have to stop preaching him like he's a heretic. We, we condemned him as a heretic. And they basically all go, no, <laughs> we love Jesus. It's a package deal. It all goes together. And they keep doing what they're doing. And then the religious leaders come back a little more sternly and they go, hey, we told you to stop preaching Jesus. You have to do that. We will arrest you if, they don't, if you don't stop. And the church looks at them and goes, no, we love Jesus. This is awesome. It's a package deal. It's one thing. Thanks, but no thanks. And they keep doing what they're doing. And eventually the religious leaders get serious and they arrest some of them and say, we told you to stop preaching Jesus. If you don't stop, we will beat you or hurt you or kill you. And they say, no, it's a package deal. We're going to keep preaching Jesus. He's awesome. And so the religious leaders beat them and whip them and say, we told you Stop preaching Jesus. And now these leaders of this little bubble are bloody and beaten and bruised. And their response is, thank you, Jesus, for counting us worthy to suffer for your name. This is awesome. And they keep doing what they're doing. And this comes to a head when one of these deacons, a man named Stephen, is dragged and brought before the highest authority of the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, and they tell him the same thing. We have told you, stop preaching Jesus. And with Stephen's response in that situation is, okay, I hear you, but let me tell you about Jesus. (laughs) You're so stiff-necked, you're not listening. It's amazing. You should hear about this gospel. And he preaches to them, and it raises up such a murderous fury that these religious leaders drag him outside and stone him to death in the middle of the city. And all of a sudden, this bubble pops. And overnight, things go really bad. And a persecution rises up against the church in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, they go from meeting every day and fellowshipping and worshiping and sharing resources and worshiping in the temple and being together as family and praising Jesus to hiding and being kicked out of the temple, and being arrested, and being killed, and having their property seized. Things go really bad, really fast. And this beautiful little bubble, right, this little picture of the kingdom in the middle of the Roman Empire, is seemingly squashed overnight. But here's the amazing thing. This story is not the acts of the church. It's not the acts of the apostles. It's not the acts of these people. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. He's the main character. He's the thread that goes beginning to end, Acts 1 to Acts 28. This is his story. And it's not as though Satan snuck behind and like tricked him and like got one over on him. And look what I did to the Jerusalem church. No, no, no. This is actually part of the plan. 
This is actually where things are supposed to go. Remember what Jesus said in our text. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, when, when they stomped on the bubble, it didn't actually pop it. It just broke it into a whole bunch of little bubbles. It pushed out of the city and spread out over the entire region. And all of a sudden, the gospel moves from Jerusalem out into Judea and Samaria. And in Acts chapters 7 and 8, we get these beautiful stories of how the gospel begins to move to the larger region. One of the other seven, one of the other deacons, we get the story of him going into Samaria and preaching the gospel to people the Jews hated, to the, to the half-breeds by their mind, the, those who are like worse than worse, the people that people avoided their country went the long way around. The gospel goes in and they receive the gospel and receive salvation and the Holy Spirit anoints them and comes in power upon the church in Samaria just like he did in Jerusalem. It's the same Holy Spirit, the same supernatural work, the same Jesus who walked through Samaria instead of around it, who spoke to the Samaritans instead of hating them. Now his spirit comes in power and anoints them. And the church in Samaria is just like the church in Jerusalem. Amen. And then we see a story of how an Ethiopian, a man from this northern region of Africa, where there's an old and established Jewish presence, he receives the gospel, and he receives the Holy Spirit. And now the church is growing up in that area. All the regions that are Jewish adjacent, right, begin to receive the gospel and the same spirit and the same power. It's this amazing story, how the spirit is moving beyond the bounds of just what's happening in Jerusalem. And all this comes together, I think, in the coolest picture in Acts chapter 9 with this young rabbi named Saul. Now, this was the guy who had helped sparked the persecution in Jerusalem in the first place. When, when Stephen is being stoned to death, he stands off to the side and holds everyone's coats so they can get like a better throw on this guy. And he helps spark this persecution and actually gets legal authority behind this persecution so they can go to other cities and keep squishing and stepping on this new church. And in the midst of that, Jesus supernaturally appears to him, which by the way, is hard to argue with at that point. I don't believe in Jesus. And he shows up and goes, why not? <laughs> like that's, that's pretty hard to argue with that. And he saves the rabbi's soul. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the one who was persecuting the church is now an apostle of the church, proclaiming and preaching the gospel. This, this movement of the Holy Spirit is so powerful, is so strong, it's not, just, it's not just not hurt by the persecution. It takes the persecution and goes, perfect, this is exactly what I needed. Now I'll spread the church out over all Judea and I'll take your primary persecutor, thank you very much, and I'll make him one of my apostles. This is wild. And all this in this first section of Acts, I think the way this culminates like most perfectly is in this scene where Peter goes and preaches the gospel to one family in their household. In Acts chapter 11, Paul, Peter receives this vision from God where he tells him to go and eat a, bunch of whole, a whole bunch of unclean food, and Peter kind of argues back and forth with God. I don't eat unclean food, and God's like, don't call unclean what I call clean, and it's back and forth. And it results in Peter at this guy's house preaching the gospel to his family. And this guy is a Roman centurion named Cornelius. 
He's an official in the Roman government. Not just the Roman government, in the Roman military. He is the definition of the oppressor, right? And Peter's in his house, preaching the gospel to him and his family. And they all get saved, and they're all baptized. And the Holy Spirit comes upon that family in power, just like he did in Samaria, and just like he did at Pentecost. And now there's a Gentile church. Come on, guys. Same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that saved the church in Jerusalem, that moved in power, that built a church in Samaria, that brought together the divided people. Now he's drawing in Cornelius the centurion. Come on. What a, what a movement from Acts 1 to Acts 11. In our text, we have Peter standing with the apostles saying, all right, Jesus, is it time? Are you ready to overthrow Rome? Are we going to do this thing? And then in Acts chapter 11, you have Peter working with the spirit of Jesus to actually overthrow Rome in the way that matters by preaching the gospel to a Roman centurion, by seeing him and his family saved from the curse and saved from the grips of hell and drawn into the kingdom. Because who, when he gets down to it, who the heck cares about the Roman Empire? Well, Cornelius and his family, well, they will be with us at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Beloved, this is the story of Acts. (laughs) The movement of the Spirit to draw all peoples unto himself. Supernaturally, moving from place to place and people to people, empowering his followers. What I love about this story, I mean, so many things. What I love about this story is that the Holy Spirit's the main character. The people, they're just church people, just doing their thing. Philip, the guy who preached the gospel in Samaria for the first time, do you know what he signed up for at church? He signed up to feed, feed food to poor people. The leaders got up and said, hey, we need someone to wait tables for our benevolence ministry. And Philip was like, I can probably do that. Yeah, I can, I can make that commitment. What night is it? And he goes and he signs up. And then however many weeks later, the Holy Spirit teleports him and he preaches the gospel to someone and saves them. And the gospel moves from Jerusalem into Ethiopia. <laughs> These are just church people doing their best to love Jesus and to actually be faithful witnesses to what they've experienced. And look what the Spirit does with that. Come on, guys. What a powerful gospel. And here's, here's what's what, what, to kind of bring this all together. This whole thing, this whole thing, this movement that's happening in Acts, This is actually the fulfillment of a promise that God has been making for generations. If you go back and you read the Old Testament in the way the prophets speak about God, and I'm saying like go all the way back to Genesis and read Joseph and Moses and like all these guys all the way up to the very end of the minor prophets. When the prophets speak, they they pretty much always speak in the language of the promises of God. Going back to Genesis 3, when sin enters the earth, God immediately begins promising that he will fix the curse. Things are bad, sin is broken, everything, but I promise you, I will fix what sin is broken. This is the message of the prophets throughout the whole of the Old Testament. I will fix what sin has broken over and over and over again. And one of the main ways, like one of the shorthands 
for how God says that, how he articulates that, is this phrase that, that so many of the prophets use where, where God says, when I restore all things, when I make all things new, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is God's shorthand for saying, I will fix the curse. We will no longer be separated. I will be your God and you will be my people. That will happen. One of my favorite ways of seeing this articulated is in Leviticus 26, in verse 11, when, when God is giving the blessings for the covenant at Sinai through Moses. He says this, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not hate you. And hear this, church. I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. I will walk around with you. We'll hang out. I won't hate you. We'll be together. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. This is the promise God is making through all of the Old Testament leading up to the ministry of Jesus. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this before, but I have this every now and then when I'm reading the Gospels or I hear a sermon on the Gospels and I just go, man, can you imagine what it would have been like to hang out with Jesus? And to see his eyes, to hear the sound of his voice. As he artic- I mean, I don't speak Aramaic, so it would have been gibberish, but you know what I'm saying. To hold hands, to take a walk, to discuss something beautiful together, like, be amazing. And yet, as amazing as that would be, Jesus actually tells us that the age of the church is greater. The age of the church is greater. The age of the church is the closest thing we have to the fulfillment of that promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will walk among you. I will not hate you. See, here's the thing. As amazing as it would have, as it would have been to walk around with Jesus, And as amazing, by the way, as it will be when he returns and you can hang and you can take a hike together. As amazing as that will be, as amazing as it would have been, there's a reality that Jesus was a dude and he was walking around and you weren't always with him. There were times when he had to go hang out with other people and you had to do your own deal. But in the age of the church, The very Spirit of God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands. And he no longer walks around with flesh and bones. No, 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 no. The very Spirit of God dwells within the temple of the human heart. You know, Jesus, when he spoke of the age of the church, he said, the prophets looked upon this time. God showed them this time and they longed to see it. Guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah who heard the voice of God were given clarity to see this age and go, oh, I long to experience that kind of connection with God, that kind of intimacy with God, to be his very temple, to have him dwell within me. They longed for this day. Beloved, the age of the church that Christ set up when he ascended into heaven that is still the age, right? It's where we live right now. It's a fulfillment of this promise. I'm with you. I will walk with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will not hate you, beloved. If you are in Christ, then the same spirit 
that came at Pentecost and created the church of Jerusalem, that came to Samaria and created the church in Samaria, that, that came upon Cornelius and his family and created a Gentile church, the same spirit that, that came and built the church in Ephesus, and the same spirit that spoke through the apostles and moved to this, made this whole book happen, that spirit dwells within you here and now. Beloved, I haven't checked in the last 20 minutes. But the last time I looked, Jesus had not returned yet. He went up into heaven. And what did he say? Wait for the Holy Spirit to come in power and then be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Someday I'll come back. But until then, you wait and be my witnesses. Beloved, that age has not ended. We're still awaiting his return. Which means you are in the exact same story that we just read. Emmanuel Fellowship Church. You are a part of the story. You are the next chapter, the next page, the next sentence. You, you know how Acts ends, by the way? Mid-thought, basically. <laughs> Mid-story. Luke just catches up to the present. He's like, well, I can't keep writing. The end. Because the story's not over. Because the acts of the Holy Spirit will not end until Christ returns and restores all things. You are living in the acts of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know right now some of you who are a little more theologically minded, maybe spend too much time on theological social media areas, are going, well, what about charismatic theology versus non-charismatic theology and the gifts of the Spirit? and the super-? That's a very interesting discussion on a side note. I have thoughts on it. If you'd like to talk about it, let's get out and do it. But for today, chuck that out the window for a minute because it's not actually helpful. What you need to consider right now is this. Christ has not yet returned, which means you are still awaiting him, which means your task is to wait on the power of the Holy Spirit and faithfully bear witness to what you have seen and what you have heard. There's this theological term called apostolic succession. It's actually really important for us. This is the idea. Jesus, in this text that we read, right, faithfully proclaimed his gospel, his message, his truth to his followers, to the apostles. They received the gospel as Jesus handed it to them. And in that gospel, they found salvation and life and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And through the faithfulness and work of the Holy Spirit, they preserved faithfully that gospel message and they proclaimed it to those who were around them. And those who are around them heard that message and received that unchanged, unfiltered gospel kingdom of God message. And they received salvation. And the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And through his faithfulness, they were able to faithfully preserve that message and bear witness to them, to the people around them. And those people heard the gospel and found salvation. And the Holy Spirit came upon them in power and through his faithfulness preserved the message of the gospel. And they faithfully bore witness to it and presented it to the people around them. And beloved, that continues generation upon generation upon generation in a straight line from the mouth of Jesus to your heart. Over the, over the span of generations and years and continents, the gospel message has been faithfully preserved. And you know your own testimony, I guarantee, is that one or several people, through the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit, bore witness to you of the one true gospel message of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on your behalf and how they have seen and what they have heard and what they have experienced. And God used that to open up your heart 
and you receive salvation. And when that happened, the Holy Spirit came upon you in power. And I guarantee if you are in Christ, he is in you right now, faithfully preserving the gospel message in you that you might bear witness. Because, beloved, you are in the same story. You're in the same story. You are Samwise Gamgee on the mountain realizing that this thing is way bigger than you thought it was. Emmanuel Fellowship Church, you are in the same company of the church at Ephesus and the church at Antioch and the church in Jerusalem. The same Holy Spirit who empowered and preserved those churches empowers and preserves you. And so you have the opportunity, the privilege to join with Jesus in that work. Come on, church. You get to have a piece of this story, a page, a chapter, a sentence, a paragraph. Don't miss that. In Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, there's this part where the author is is talking about the faithfulness of God over generation to generation and how he, he faithfully preserved his message from person to person to person to person. And it all comes together. In Hebrews chapter 12, he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, you are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses generations of believers have come before you into the power of the Holy Spirit. They faithfully preserve the gospel message so that you might be included in the kingdom. We stand on their shoulders through the grace and faithfulness of God. Beloved, do not waste your chapter. Do not waste this peace you have. Run with endurance. Give yourself fully to this work. Fight for holiness. Allow the, the power of the Spirit and the truth of the gospel to actually change your life. But you might be a bubble of heaven in a broken and cursed world. Beloved, do not waste your chapter. Bear witness. The Holy Spirit has preserved the gospel within you. Don't let it terminate on you. Bear witness to what you have seen and what you have heard. Share what he has done for you. Share what he proclaimed, what has been preserved. And see, church, just see what the Holy Spirit can do with the faithful obedience of a little bitty church. Come on. Come on. This is what our God is doing. It's the same story. It has not ended. And we get to be a part of it today. Pray with me. Band, if you want to come up. Jesus. You are so good to us. You are so faithful. God, I cannot fathom that out of all this world, all this creation, all this existence, all these people, you saw fit to include me in your kingdom, to seek me out, to faithfully preserve your word, Holy Spirit. When I ran hard from you, when I pushed away, Still you chased, still you spoke, and still you saw that I might be included. 
But it astounds me how good you are to us. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being in your kingdom, of being a part of this glorious gospel story that you have been working since before the foundations of the earth. I just ask this morning, Jesus, that you would push us. That we would not, we know, Lord, you're going to accomplish your work. You've done it all up to this point. You have continued and faithfully preserved and advanced your kingdom up to this point. And I am confident that you will continue that work, Jesus. But I ask that you would not pass us by. That we would be included. That we would run our race well. That we would bear witness. That we would be a part of this story. As we await your return. Jesus, do this work in our heart. We love you. We need you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.